The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to uh, open it to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some in the seat backs in front of you. Um, you can also find it on the Bible app, uh, Uversion app. Uh, if you have any questions today about our message, and I imagine today's message might drive some questions, I would love for you to send uh, those questions to the number that's on the screen. It's also in your bulletin. And then on Tuesday mornings at 11.15, we go onto our church Facebook page and answer those questions. And if you're not on Facebook, um, you can find that video later in the day on our church website. It's also on our app um, the day after that. So here's what we've been doing um, for about the last five months now. We've been talking about the church at Ephesus. And specifically, what we've been talking about the last few weeks is Paul's first letter to Timothy. Timothy was the pastor in Ephesus. Paul had met Timothy almost 15 years earlier in the city of Lystra. And Timothy had been brought up in the faith by his mother and his grandmother. And at some point during those 15 years, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus. And now he's writing this letter to Timothy um, to do two things to stop false teachers, to correct their teaching, but to do that out of love. The motivation for Timothy's, for Timothy's charge, for Timothy's job, was love. And these false teachers were revealing themselves in three different ways. Last week we talked about chapter 1. They were revealing themselves in chapter 1 by their endless arguments, uh, by their desire for controversy, um, their pointless conversations that they were having over the meanings of words. In chapter 4, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, um, these false teachers were revealing themselves by the way they added to Scripture, by the way they added to the law. And then in chapter 6, these teachers reveal themselves by their pursuit of money. So they were, they were teaching in order to, in order to gain money. Um, if we were to read... Um, if we were to read throughout the Bible, um, we would find um, that whenever people are, are doing these kinds of things, whenever they're caught up in these kinds of things, the root of those problems is always selfishness and self-idolatry. That's the real root of what's happening in 1 Timothy. And in the entire Bible, and it's not just the bad people, but it's good people. Um, I've thought of this week, I thought about how Abraham and his wife Sarah got sick and tired of waiting on God to do what he said he was going to do for them. So Sarah devised a plan. She would give her husband Abraham her servant. She would, he would um, impregnate her servant, and then they would have a child. They would fulfill God's destiny, God's plan for them in their own way. And then later in life, Abraham and then their son Isaac, they would both pass off their wives as their sister at various times in their lives. Grandson Jacob lives an entire life of deceit. He's constantly stealing birthrights and stealing the blessings of other people. And he lives a selfish life of accumulation. And he's constantly leaving other people in his wake. See, this is all selfishness. This is all the idolatry of self. If you were to go into the book of Exodus, you would see Moses time and time again. This person who has a consistent anger problem. And it always forces 
God's plan to be delayed because of the way Moses does things. Whether it's killing an Egyptian on his own or smashing his staff against a rock, it was always delaying God's people from receiving their promises. Every single one of the judges, if you were to read through the book of Judges, you would see that every judge has their own dysfunctions. If Samson were alive today, and if we could catch him, he would be in a maximum security prison. And it's true that God demonstrates mercy and grace to every single one of these people. And he even uses each of these people to reveal himself. But this carried over into the New Testament as well. People in the New Testament were not immune to selfishness and the idolatry of self. The situation that we've been talking about over the last few weeks from the church in Ephesus is pretty desire, is pretty dire. It was filled with people who did whatever they wanted to do. They taught whatever they wanted to teach, and they argued, and they left things open-ended. And whoever wanted to teach could teach. And I know in our 21st century mindset, that sounds like a really good idea. If somebody wants to teach, we should let them teach. But that's not what God's plan is, and it only caused more and more problems. These false teachers, they were using the law not as a means to point people to God, but they were using it as a bludgeon on other people. And Paul tells Timothy to fight well. He says, Timothy, you, you must cling to your faith. You must come, keep your conscience clean. And then he says this, some people have deliberately violated their consciences. And as a result, they've shipwrecked their faith. They've ruined their faith. Because when we worship at the altar of self, we eventually bring chaos. And each one of us has seen that in our own lives. When we worship at the altar ourself, chaos eventually ensues. And this is why, and we talked about this last week, this is why that, that mindset of follow your heart is so faulty. Because history is filled with people who followed their hearts. People, have, people in this room have had their lives changed when mothers or fathers followed their hearts and left their families. Doing what's best for me is always a recipe for disaster. And here's why. Because when what I want and what God wants, when those two things collide, if I'm not, if I'm not clinging to my faith, if I'm not keeping my conscience clean, then I will frequently choose what I want over what God wants. And when I do that, I jettison my faith. I cast it aside. And it is into this story of self-worship and self-idolatry that Timothy is placed and this letter is written to him. This, this won't just be a matter of what Timothy does for himself, clinging to his faith and keeping his conscience clean. Timothy has real work that he has to do in the church at Ephesus. And he starts this by confronting the God of self in the lives of the people at Ephesus. We're going to read 1 Timothy 2, but before we do, so one of the things that we've done over the past several weeks is we've given a little resource. Last week's resource was on the value of listening to God's word. We talked about that a few weeks ago, that, that faith comes by hearing. There's benefit for us in just listening to God's word. It forces us to, 
pay attention. It forces us to orient ourselves to the way the, piece, the person who is sharing God's word, who's reading it, it forces us to orient to, their, to the way they're speaking. I found this article this week. It's called Four Things to Pray Before Opening Your Bible. See, one of the things that we're really working at here at Westway Christian Church is, is not just telling you to read your Bible, but we want to give you tools so that you can do that. One of the ways that we, we will get the most out of our time in Scripture is if our orientation is towards God. So I would encourage you this week, when you read through Scripture, next week we're talking about 1 Timothy chapter 3. So this week, as you prep for next Sunday and you read 1 Timothy chapter 3, tuck this in your Bible. Spend just a moment reading through it and praying. So we're going to pray these these things before we read 1 Timothy chapter 2 today. So let's pray. Father, we pray that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain, that we would be filled with the desire to hear you, not what we want to hear out of it. God, we pray that you would open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things of your law. God, we need eyes to see what you have for us. We need ears to hear what you have for us. We can't do that on our own. So we ask you that you would open our eyes to these things. God, we pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, that we would be not divided or distracted. And lastly, Lord, as we hear your word this morning, we pray that you would satisfy us with your love, that we would be satisfied with what you have to teach us this morning. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen. So let's read 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's the greatest noise in the world, what you people all just did there by turning your Bible pages. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them and intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. 
For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved by ch- through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. One of the things I want you to know this morning is that God cares how he is worshipped. God cares how he is worshipped. If we were to review the book of Exodus, we would see that he was incredibly specific about how the Israelites were to worship him, even down to the number of loops on curtains and the articles used. I've been using that Dwell app. I've told you about that um, probably four times now over the last month. I've been using that Dwell app, and this um, the past two weeks I've actually been in Exodus. And Exodus is filled with nothing but instructions of worship. What the tabernacle was supposed to look like, what the curtains were supposed to look like, what the clothing that the priests were to wear were supposed to look like, what the sacrifices were supposed to be like. See, God cares about how he is worshipped. And that didn't change in the New Testament. As the gospel spread... Christianity went from, it went from a sect, a part of Judaism, and it became its own faith. And this took place for really two main reasons. The first one was the Jews refused to accept, many Jews refused to accept Jesus as their Messiah. And as a result, the message of Jesus spread to Gentiles. It spread to pagans. And the people still needed to know how they were supposed to worship. Should they still gather in the Jewish synagogues? What elements of of worship were these Gentiles and these pagans bringing with them into their gatherings? And how, how were these things that were coming with the Gentiles, how were they informing and challenging and changing the worship of God? And see, here's, here's something that Paul understood. How people worship is an indicator of what people worship. How people worship is an indicator of what people worship. The people of Ephesus were angry and bitter because the only thing that mattered to them was themselves. That's why they were getting involved in all of these different controversies. See, they were a people, and if you've been here for, for a few months, you probably know what I'm going to say. They were a people who were in love with their preferences. They love their own power, they love their own place, and their own position. And what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is that worship of God begins with prayer, and then the attitudes and the actions of those who want to worship God, they matter. So pray, and then our own attitudes and our own actions matter. Well, who should we pray for? We should pray for everyone We should pray for leaders. How should we pray? We should ask God that he would help other people, that he would plead, that we would plead to God, that we would thank God for them. And we should do this for all people. See, this presses on our God of self, doesn't it? To know that we are called to pray for all people? I don't know about you, but in my selfishness, I'm really focused on myself when I pray. And what Paul is telling Timothy to do is he's telling Timothy to orient 
himself and their church around the good of other people. To pray for other people. Then he says, pray for leaders, that they would create environments which allow for peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Well, I wonder what this means, that that we are supposed to pray to leaders so that we would have peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Here's what I don't think it means. I don't think Paul is saying, I want Christians to have lives of peace and security. I don't think Paul is saying, I want Christians to feel comfortable and safe. I don't think Paul was saying, I want Christians to be prosperous, to have full bellies and full bank accounts. I think Paul is, Paul's prayer here is that the world would be at peace so the gospel of Jesus Christ would be spread. This is why he talks about God and about Christ as the mediator. Because if the world is filled with chaos and disorder, and the governments allow this chaos and disorder to reign, then the gospel growth is going to be stunted. And I think sometimes we, we read this text that God wants us to have quiet lives as some sort of entitlement text. That God wants me to feel good and have peace and security and be safe and all of these things. But Paul's interest is the gospel. Paul cares about the gospel of Jesus Christ going out into all of the nations. Do you see how this presses against the selfishness of the people in Ephesus? What Paul is saying is that Jesus is the mediator. It's not Artemis of the Ephesians that's the mediator, it's Jesus. And it is this proclamation over and over and over again that Jesus is the mediator, that Jesus is Lord. This is the most important thing. As Christians, this is what we are to be about, is proclaiming Jesus as king. See, because he knows that that worship of self often leads to chaos. And sometimes chaos is marked by laziness and complacency. And if you have kids, you know that's true. When you want your kids to clean up the room and all they're doing is screen time, that creates chaos all over your house. Sometimes chaos is marked by laziness and complacency. Freedom is not having every single thing we want. Paul would not define freedom as us having the latest piece of technology. Paul would not define freedom as being able to pull into our garage at the end of the day, hit the button, and shut the entire world out. See, freedom is found in Christ. And this is what the people of Ephesus needed to hear. And it's what the people of Westway need to be proclaiming to our communities is that freedom is found in Christ as our mediator. There would be two things that would prevent the people of Ephesus from being bringers of freedom. And the first one is found in what he says to men. He tells them to pray with their hands lifted up, not raised in anger or argumentation, but lifted up to God. Pray with hands raised to God. 
See, God's not mocked. He's not fooled. I want you to listen to what James says. No one can tame the tongue. It's restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who've been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers, this is not right. See, one of the things about our culture and our society is we just accept this. We just accept that blessing and cursing can come out of the same mouth. We just accept it. We, we come in on a Sunday morning and we praise God. And then Monday to Saturday, we say and do whatever we want to say and do about other people. And this is what it looks like to violate your conscience. When we behave in this way, and I said we, when we behave in this way, we are violating our consciences. This is what it means to know what we ought to do and to not do it. We cannot, we cannot accurately worship God with hands that are clenched in anger and bitterness towards one another. We cannot accurately worship God with hands that are clenched in anger and bitterness towards our culture, towards the people outside of this room. And, and with every bit of anger that we retain and every controversy that we create, we ebb closer and closer and closer to shipwreck. And one of the things I love about the way Paul writes is this isn't an accidental thing. This journey from from faithful believer to shipwreck is not accidental. In chapter 1, he says that these people have deliberately violated their conscience. And isn't that what you and I do? When we badmouth other people, when we retain anger and bitterness towards other people, aren't we deliberately violating our conscience? Aren't we choosing to be disobedient to what God calls us to? This is what it looks like to ignore God's clear word. And I think some, some of us can be so filled with anger and bitterness and rage that we're so focused on ourselves. And here's the fix. Here's the resolution for that. To lift up your hands to God. Don't just cling to yourself as God. Because we are not the final arbiters of right and wrong. We are not the ones that get to pick and choose what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad. See, that's God's role as the final judge. That's what it means that Jesus is our mediator. Because he knows what is right and wrong. The men were bringing with them to the gathering nothing but anger and bitterness. They were bringing rage and dissension, controversy, and chaos. And Timothy is called to confront their God of self. Well, let's talk about women. Because that's why you're all here today. I thought this was a really funny thing to bring up in front of this conversation. It just hit me right now. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's good. Um, 
So on Sunday or Monday, I started to see this thing on Facebook. Maybe you saw it. People were talking about there was a certain day of every year that a broom would stand all by itself. Did anybody see that post this week or know what I'm talking about? Yep. There's a certain day of the year that a broom would stand by itself. Now, I'm really cynical about pretty much every single thing in life. Um, So I saw people posting that all day long, and there was part of me that was like, I'm going to try this. I'm not like there was this internal battle of whether or not I was going to try it. And I waited, and actually on Tuesday morning, um, I just, and this is the day after, okay? So, so supposedly Monday was the day that a broom was going to stand up by itself. So on Tuesday, there's something in my mind, I'm like, this just doesn't sound right. This doesn't make any sense to me. Oh, almost had it. So I went out into my kitchen, and I grabbed our broom, and like it stood, right? So it's like, okay, well, that's interesting. And then I started thinking like, so is it supposed to be like the broom stands because the earth is tilted at a certain degree? Okay, so, so, so I'm thinking about that. But then I'm like, well, well, if that's the case, like, don't I, what if I have the orientation of the broom wrong, right? So what if it's tilted one way and I've got it tilted another way? So I, so I took it and then, of course, I did that and, and it stood. And then I started doing it on all these different things. And I just thought to myself... Sometimes when we hear things like this, we maybe need to spend a minute of research. Right? We need to spend maybe a minute of research to try and understand what's happening with stuff like this. One of the things that that I've encouraged you to do over the last six months or so is that when we read something in Scripture and we're challenged by what it says, what if we took a minute? What if we pressed in to what the Bible has to say about certain things? I think this is one of those texts that we ought to chat about. Let's reread 1 Timothy Chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let a woman teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Now, a moment ago I said that one of the reasons one of the issues that the church at Ephesus was facing was, was religious traditions that were coming in from pagans and Gentiles as they entered into the faith. 
Let's talk a little bit about the cult of Artemis for a minute. The cult of Artemis was female-led. Women would turn to Artemis for protection, for help during childbirth. Female worshipers in the cult of Artemis were known for their braided hair because that was how Artemis wore their hair. Female worshipers, especially the priestesses, were often prominent and wealthy women. These things allowed them to flaunt their wealth and mimic Artemis with their dress, hairstyles, and jewelry. Female worshipers recited prayers, served piously, and fiercely competed with one another to attain various roles that were linked to their adornments and their activities. So here's what that means. The better these women looked, the louder they shouted in their gatherings, the more they demonstrated how faithful they were to Artemis. And the higher they went up in the religious and leadership ranks. The cult of Artemis taught that evil was brought forth on earth by men, not women. I'm wondering right now, as you heard what Paul said and you hear what Artemis worship looks like, I'm wondering, are there any light bulbs going off in anyone's head right now? Does anyone want to guess what the consequence of unfaithfulness to Artemis was? It was death and childbirth. See, these things that Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he's speaking against their cultural norms. He's speaking against the way that these women had come into the church and were so used to worshiping Artemis, and they were bringing all of that with them. They were carrying all of these pagan worship ideas and ideals and commitments and processes with them into the church. And what Paul is doing here, like he did with the men in confronting their idol of self as revealed by anger and bitterness, Paul is confronting the women in their idol of self in the way that they clung to their religious history. Does Paul hate women? No, he doesn't hate women. Does he want all women to sit down and shut up? Probably these ones. But that's not what he said about Phoebe in Romans 16.1. It's not what he said about Mary in Romans 16.6. He wasn't against Lydia of Philippi in Acts 16:11 to 15. Paul left Priscilla and her husband Aquila in Ephesus. The order there is important. I want you to know when you when you're reading through the Bible and you see people named where it says someone and someone, usually the most important person in the relationship is the first person mentioned. And what you're going to notice when Paul talks about Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla's name is mentioned first. I've got about 15 more examples if you want them. Does Paul want these women to stop worshiping at the altar of self? Yes. 
Does he want them to stop bringing the evidence of their old lives with them when they come to worship the one true God? Yes. See, women here at Westway, they lead in lots of different ways. They lead our missions team and our next steps team. One of them is going to be heading up our VBS. They lead music on Sunday mornings. There are lots of ways that females serve here at Westway Christian Church. And I've been thinking about this, like, what do, what do we believe about women serving at Westway Christian Church? I think the answer is the same thing we believe about anyone who serves at Westway Christian Church. We want people to serve in their giftedness, in their skills. And that's going to look different. That's going to not only look different for males and females, but that's going to look different for men. That's going to look different for women. And perhaps because, because I, know, I know our culture. There are, there are some really cynical people in our culture that say, okay, John, that's great, but the leadership roles that you named, like they're not pastor or elder, right? This is what our culture is going to say to you. They're not pastor or elder, so, so they're not a real leader, well, here's what I'll do. I will invite all of those who serve in our church that are females, that lead from our church, I'll invite them up front today, and then afterwards I'll let you come and minimize their leadership. Because I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to look at a single female who leads at Westway Christian Church and tell them it's not real leadership. I'm not going to tell them it's not real servanthood. And we're going to press on what our culture says. We must press on what our culture says. Maybe that crossed the line for you. But I told you I was going to say things during this message time together that are going to come off a little bit strong. This is something I feel really passionate about, about in our church, in the way people lead a few weeks ago, I said that our agenda for the series has two parts. The first one was for us to learn and understand how godly leaders lead in the midst of challenges and hardships. And I want you to know something. I've kind of thought about this. Um, like, we're not giving this, we're not talking about this series. We're not doing this because, because I feel like there's like these major leadership dysfunctions in our church. And I, I don't want anyone to, I don't want anyone to have that impression that we're doing this so that we can confront some things. Um, we live in an anything-goes culture. But we do not have and we don't want to have an anything-goes church. So one of the things that we want to do is we want to we teach our body. That's what good leaders do. Whether they're pastors, elders, ministry team leaders, Sunday school teachers, like whatever their role what good leaders do is they teach us how to be functional, how to exist within the church. And that's our second agenda, is, is for God to confront our own sinful tendencies and attitudes and see how they might contribute to a dysfunctional church environment. Because as much as there were leadership problems in the church in Ephesus— as much as these false teachers and false leaders were creating all sorts of issues and problems for the church, I'm going to argue that it was the people of the church who allowed it to happen because of their own sinful behaviors. 
It wasn't just the false teachers who were coming in and raising their hands in anger. It was the entire body. It wasn't just female leaders in the church who were coming in with their hair all did up. But it was all of them were doing that. And this is because they were placing their own selfishness. They were placing their own preferences and power and place and position over and above everything else. They were choosing that what they wanted to do was more important than what God wanted to do. And they were placing themselves above God. They were their own gods. And I think if we were to be, allow ourselves to be confronted today, we would see that we often worship ourselves as God. So we want to talk about our sin in the hopes that we might confess it, in the hope that we might repent of our sin and submit ourselves to God. Well, what kind of gods might be confronted from this chapter for us this morning? The first one is prayer. Is prayer your first stop or is it your last resort? When you pray to God and you're, you're asking for a good government, right? Because I know, because I see your Facebook posts. We're all praying for such a good government. Are we doing that because we want a good government so the stock market increases? Are we doing that because we want personal safety and security? Or are we praying because, because we want a calm nation so we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ? What allows for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? We have to ask ourselves, are we living lives in the pursuit for our, for our own good deeds? Are we, are we choosing our own good deeds to be the mediator between us and God, or is Jesus our mediator? If we want to be our own mediator, then, then our sinful attitudes and tendencies are going to foster an environment of selfishness. I know that there are people in this, in this room today who are just filled with anger and bitterness and rage. I know it. And if you're wondering why, if that's you, why you're having a hard time connecting with God... I love you, and that's why. Because you, you cannot cling to anger and bitterness and at the same time seek and worship God. It's impossible for you to lift up your hands in praise to him when your hands are lifted up in anger and controversy towards other people. And if this is us, then, then our relationship, our desire to be right is preventing us from being in a relationship with God. Our quest to be right. There are others of us in the room that have brought things from the outside to our worship. Like the women of Ephesus who, who couldn't worship unless their hair was done in a certain way. There are some of us that that don't believe we can worship unless we sing a music, sing music in a certain style. And I will tell you that is the same God of self that the women of Ephesus had. 
It is the same level of selfishness. And this attitude that we have, that, that we can't worship God unless all of these things line up for us, well, the reason we can't worship God isn't because of the song, it's because we're worshiping ourselves. And God will not help us, he will not allow us to be double-minded. And unless we leave these things at the foot of the cross, we'll never experience the transformation that Jesus has for us because we are constantly trying to place ourselves on the throne. When we worship ourselves, we are placing ourselves on a throne that is not ours to have. We, have an enti- we live in a community that has 25,000 people in it. And many of those people have no idea who Jesus is. And because they don't know who he is, they don't know their need for him. And what they want to know is, is there, is there a place for them? Is there somewhere that they can belong? Whether they're male or female. These people want to see integrity on our Facebook pages. They want to see integrity in our lives. They want to see us living out the meaning and the attitude and the heart behind the verses that we post on Facebook. They, they don't want to just see us know, to be known for our cultural stances. They want to see a group of Christians care for the people in their community, not as a means of filling seats, but it's because what Jesus told us to do. See, we, don't, we didn't give $1,000 last year to foster grandparents so we would have more people here on a Sunday morning. We're not giving $5 to the Options Pregnancy Center all year long so we have more people in this space. We don't fill backpacks in September, so we have more people in the space. Like, that would be a really great side. Like, I would love for that to happen. Don't misunderstand. We want people to know Jesus, and we can do that by, by meeting real physical needs. But what people want to experience from the church is love. Unconditional love that doesn't receive anything in return. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with loving our community regardless of their response to us. And I want you to feel that same way because this is what we see in Scripture. And to do each of these things requires our surrender. It requires the death of our false gods. It requires acceptance and submission to the only mediator that we have, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is our mediator. And we reveal who we worship by how we worship. Now, I want to impress on you today the desire to worship God in the way that he desires to be worshiped. Not with a divided heart of anger and bitterness. Not with a divided heart of bringing things from the world into our gathering. But with openness and honesty. With transparency and with surrender. Let's pray.
God, we ask this morning that you would you would just confront our sin. You would confront our God of self so that we might kill that God. Pray that we would not carry things from the world into our worship, but that we would be focused on worshiping you. God, I pray that we would accept and submit to Jesus alone as our mediator and find satisfaction in him alone. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.